Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, headshots, maybe you need drone content from a licensed drone pilot, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. While you're there, you could also hear previous episodes of Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Check out my interviews with Dick Burton, Buzz Van Houten, Terry Foster, Donald Schuster, Karen D'Alessandro, Chuck Santoni, Michelle McCormick, just to name a few. Uh, again, all that can be, uh, all that and more can be found at RonRobinsonStudios.com. If, if you'd like to help and become a producer for Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, the documentary film that I'm producing about the history of radio, go ahead and click on the Patreon or PayPal links at RonRobinsonStudios.com, or you can also do so uh, by clicking the heart icon at the top of the Buzzsprout page if that's where you're listening to this podcast. Also, again, as always, I want to thank you for tuning into this podcast. I really do appreciate you. And if you are enjoying the podcast, do me a favor, share it with your friends. And if there's a radio personality, former, current, or otherwise, that you'd like to hear more about, shoot me an email, ron at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Today we're going to be talking, I'm so, so excited about today's show. We're going to be talking to a gentleman who is no stranger to Detroit radio. He's been on the air at WABX, W4 WRIF as well. He's also been heard on 92.3 KOMP in Vegas and 107 KAZY. I think I said that right in Denver. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Todd Fowler. How are you, sir? Good morning, Vietnam. Oh, there we go. Wrong, wrong country. Hi, Ron. How are you, sir? I'm real good. I'm real good. You, you still got those pipes I hear. Well, we, we gargle regularly and, uh, you know, we do our best. Try to stay <laughs> a lot of questions about your career, Todd, but before we get started, a question I always ask everybody up front is, is when you were growing up, uh, listening to the radio, obviously back then it was so much more part of our daily lives. What were you listening to? Uh, who were some of the, what were some of the stations and, and who were some of the personalities that you were listening to growing up in Metro Detroit? More than, uh, others, probably WKNR Keener 13. Partly because uh, that was a Dearborn-based radio station. I grew up in Dearborn, so um, and Keener Thirteen probably played the hits as much or more than anybody, other than maybe CKLW, and that would have been the other station I listened to. Yeah, Keener came first, and then CKLW just kind of said, "Well, we're you know, hold my hold my beer here." But you know, you you mentioned Keener. I mean, when I think of Keener, I think of Robin Seymour. I think of Dick Purton. Were some were was those some of the guys that you were listening to? Absolutely, absolutely. All of the above, yeah, without hesitation, yeah, probably Dick and uh, and Robin Seymour. Now, what kind of radio were they doing? Because because radio is is so much evolved as as compared to what it was then. Uh, there was a lot of bits, but talk about some of the some of the things that they they did during their shows, if you can recall. You know, well, honestly, I can't, Ron, because I think I was kind of a. Um, a part-time listener. I, if I listened to radio, it might've been Ernie Harwell and Tiger Broadcast on WJR. But, uh, you know, as far as Keener and CK, you know, I was a light listener, uh, probably even up until about 16 years old. Wow. Um, you know, we don't, I, I, I wasn't somebody that sat with a transistor radio and listened to the radio. Well, I find that interesting because uh, it wasn't too long after that you decided to go to Specs Howard. If if that was the case, uh, why did you pursue a career in radio? Was it to do news? Because I think you started in news, didn't you? 
Yeah, that was that was my first, and I'll and I'll get started with that uh, as we talk about uh, the reason I went to specs. I think my world changed a little bit in '69 with Woodstock, and started listening to a little bit more FM, I, I you know AOR music back then. But it really changed when I went in the Air Force. I went in the Air Force right out of high school, pretty much. Uh, I had to wait until my 18th birthday. Uh, which was November 7th. I went in on the 10th on a guaranteed job. I, I did not know that. I have to ask you a question. You were in Air Force boot camp. I was, I was in the Marines much a few years later. I won't say much later, but I got to tell you, we went to MP school because I was an MP uh, at mm-hmm. Lackland Air Force Base. And to this day, I've been to four or five Marine bases and then Lackland, and that was the best chow. I know you went to boot camp at Lackland, right? Was it was at boot yes, camp at Lackland. Absolutely. I mean, yep. Yep. How, how would you find that experience in boot camp? I'm always curious about what Air Force well, boot camp was like. It's funny. Air Force was the, you know, of the the majors was the easiest of, of all. And that's my brother was in Vietnam. And uh, he told me that if, if you don't enlist, because I was still Vietnam era draft. My brother said, if you don't enlist, I'll come home and kill you. Because at the oh. time I was still uh, draft eligible. And my number probably was in the low 100s. So, um he said, either join the Air Force or the Navy because you won't end up here in Vietnam. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I enlisted, and it was, back then it was a six-month delay, which, you know, caused all kinds of anxiety. But uh, uh, it was also a guaranteed job. And uh, in, at that point, uh, I, I tested extremely high, so I had my choice of doing anything I wanted. And, and I ended up with a used car salesman for a recruiter. Oh, man because he convinced me to go into aircraft control warning and warning radar. He says, you're going to go to school for a year and then you're going to travel the world for the other three years. Are you sitting here telling me that a recruiter lied to you? I don't believe that. (laughs) Anyway, I I believed him. And he also said, you know, when you get out of the air force, you'd be able to get a job just about anywhere, any airport, otherwise, you know, anything that's oriented. I got in, I was, uh, in school in Gulfport, Mississippi, Biloxi, and uh, going to, uh, you know, electric, electronic school, which was going to be a year. And about a six month into the school, I found out where that three years of traveling all over the world was going to be. Where? If you know any movie with a little white dome building with snow blowing around oh. it. So my job would have had me in what what was called what's called the dew line which is our northernmost defense and it's between greenland and alaska and northern canada now we're talking northern canada yeah you're not going to so, get a tan up there no and every every job site or location was remote and and they were all set up that they were no closer than 100 miles from any village or town or anything so you go out for 3 months with nine other guys and then you come in for a month and then you go back out for three months. And it was all the, you know, they would have been all in the do line. So the only way you could change your job at that time at six months into a year long school was to flunk. So I flunked on purpose oh, wow. because there was no way I was going to spend three years of my life in Northern Canada freezing my. Might've been a duty. good, might've been a good career move in hindsight, right? Yes. 
Anyway, much like you, now they, you know, they, they called me in the office and I, I, what you had to do is essentially flunk two blocks in a row. We, we worked in blocks. They were week-long or two-week-long blocks. So, again, I was top 5% of the class, lab assistant, doing extremely well. So I flunked two in a row. They called me in the office and said, laughingly, Fowler, what's going on? Oh, I just don't understand this stuff. Well, good news is you got two choices. Bad news is you can be a cook or a security. What do you want to do? <laughs> because they won't retrain you after they spent six months with, you know, spending money on you. So um, I took security. And the good news is I ended up in nuclear security. Wow. And uh, had a couple pretty good jobs. Well, when you uh, mentioned Air Force, I thought you were going to kind of go Adrian Cronauer because I have had, uh, I think, Pat Moody. Um, I've had him on the podcast before. He served in the Air Force, you know, shortly after Vietnam. and uh, But he was influenced by, you know, Adrian Cronauer. You mentioned Good Morning Vietnam. Did you get a little bit of that when you were in the Air Force, no, that or was, was that, that totally? Was post, yeah, that was post, uh, you know, anything I did in the Air Force. No. Um, so, wait, so, 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 so let's get to radio. What, what got you the bug? I mean, you're in the Air Force. You obviously you get, you get out. Talk me through what led you to say, you know what, I'm going to go to Specs and, and pursue this as a career. I was out living with my brother, Detroit cop, and uh, my father had run a Chrysler plant in the uh, Detroit area. He was assistant plant manager, and I wasn't finding work. My, my intention when I uh, – Prior to uh, the Air Force, when I was in high school, so I was going to be a car designer or an architect. And uh, I started going to Henry Ford Community College for liberal arts and uh, mass comm. And I was there probably for a semester. And I was riding in the car with my brother and Lee Allen doing the Specs commercials back then. Commercial came on. And I looked at my brother and I went, Specs Howard School of Broadcast Arts, 569-0101. So the Specs Howard commercial came on. My brother looked at me and said, what are you nuts? Go look and see if the Air Force will pay for it. We don't ask for experience. We give it. You won't read it in a book. You live it. Pick a service. Pick a challenge. Set yourself apart. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. What a great place. It's a great place to start. So... Air Force paid for it. So I started going to Specs. I was one of the first interns, if not the first intern placed out of their intern program. And fortunate for me, I landed at AVX. So I, I learned from the best. So you, while you're at student at Specs, you got a job at ABX. Is that, is I that how it went? Intern, yeah, internship at ABX. I wasn't being paid. I started working with Steve Monkevich and doing the news magazine. And I was his producer editor. And, I, I have uh, a lot of questions about ABX, but I want to backtrack a second about your Specs days. So a lot of people don't know this, but uh, I, I believe Specs Howard bought the school from Lee Allen. So Lee Allen ran the school when you were a student there. Was Dick Kernan there? or What What was the, no, curri- Allen, what was the curriculum Kernan, like when you went to Specs, if you Dick, could walk us through Dick that? Dick Kernan was there, and it was, probably, it was radio only. They didn't, hadn't gotten into television yet. It was very early. And I wasn't aware of the purchase from Lee Allen, but anyway – Yes, yeah, Specs. Dick Kernan was, uh, he's my hero. He uh, he pretty much, you know, firsthand told me, you, first of all, Fowler, you're, you're really good, but you're not going to get a job in Detroit. So don't even try. He said, you, you know, the usual go small market and get your work your way back. Well, I started the internship at ABX with Monkevich. And uh, when Steve Dow left and went over to W4, 
Steve followed him over there and I was hoping to get his job at ABX and it didn't happen. So I went over and, and followed Steve over to W4 and uh, worked as an intern there for probably just a little less than a year and got my first paying job doing overnight news at W4. All right, well, that's a good place to interject this question because, you know, you, 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 you I mean, wow. First off, <laughs> it, what, you're, <laughs> what Dick Kernan says isn't going to come true. I mean, he, I remember him telling me that when I was a student there in 2000. He never stopped talking about that. But, you know, you intern at ABX hoping to turn that into a gig. That's the, it, that you see that that's not going to happen. Is that why you took the insurance internship at W four? Because at that time, obviously, Riff's king of the hill right now. But at that time, ABX was the most revered, and W four and, and Riff were competing to beat ABX at that time. So, what made you leave the bigger station, or did you even look at it like that, Todd? No, I you know again uh, following on the coattails of Mister Monkevich, and what we were doing with the news magazine was something that nobody else was doing. Uh, I wanted to do that at ABX, but they didn't give me that opportunity to, to get paid and work. Uh, but uh, going to W4, I saw as an opportunity again to, you know, get that experience, regardless if I was getting paid or not. Still working at Chrysler Corporation, by the way, and not enjoying one second of that. But uh, I persevered and did both and uh, ended up, uh, Jim Johnson was a program director and I ended up, back then, you know, your, your requirement uh, was to do so many minutes of news a day. So we backed everything into the overnights. I did six minute no newscasts and overnights, but we did it as again, a news magazine, which if anybody's aware of PM magazine, that format was established off of our radio format that we did. And wow, uh, I didn't know that. That's fa That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That came to Steve. I actually came to Steve at a point and asked if he would be a you know creative for PM Magazine, and he didn't want anything to do with television. He didn't feel he was a television guy. Interesting. Uh, voice only. How was it different at, at W4 than ABX? Were they similar, or was it was it a different world well, at the different stations? It was it was a little different. Um, you know, throw some names out, but Carmen Harlan was doing a longtime uh, Channel 4 television anchor, was doing morning radio, and... Uh, it became after Steve Dow and Howard Stern that became JJ and the Morning Crew. At the time, it was to me, it, it to this day, even though I'm real strong with, uh, with ABX as far as my history is concerned, W4 was my favorite radio station. Could you elaborate on why, you, why that is? I think it was form formatically, uh, you know, ABX was freeform, so it was creative, but, um, W4 was formatted, but they were playing everything from Ozzy to Elvis Costello. So there was a lot going on at that radio station. It was a very strong staff. Uh, we did everything, you know, uh, softball games at Belle Isle that would attract 10,000 people because when Journey came to town or somebody came to town, we would play, you know, pretty much competitive softball against the bands and stuff. So. I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of my questions. I mean, that's one thing that have, has been fascinating doing this podcast interviewing and then my movie as well, interviewing Paz man. And, and some of these people I'm, I'm going to mention, I'm going to talk to you specifically about later, but yeah. you know, talk John O'Leary before he passed would talk about it. And, and I talked to Doug Podell about those softball games that went on between ABX and W4 and riff and journey and other bands like the rockets, 
Talk to me about the environment. You mentioned a lot of people would come out. That had to be an awesome, awesome time. Oh, we had the kite ins out there as well uh, at the time. That was ABX more than it was W4. But the baseball games, uh, the, the softball fields out of Belle Isle, there'd be four or five deep in the outfield outside the fence watching us play softball. There'd be 10,000 people there. Now, I, I recently talked to Buzz Van Houten, and he was very competitive. He he kind of led one of those teams. Was he, yeah. was he was he as competitive as I think he was? Absolutely. Buzz was actually one of the reasons I, I loved W4, too. He was probably in my top three favorite general managers of all time. So, yeah, it was it was a good, uh, good atmosphere, great experience downtown. Um, and I think the thing about W4 that I'll bring up is that when I was graduating from high school, my best friend and I used to drive down to W4 in hopes that we could see Karen Savelli in the window. <laughs> you weren't alone, my friend. You weren't alone. <laughs> yes. So, and we accomplished that. We got down and Karen was at the studio, uh, the broadcast studio was in the front of the building in W4 in Jefferson. So the windows, you could, you could see the jocks that they, you know, right. got away from the, the board and walked over to the windows and, and we saw Karen. So that, you know, that made our days. And the funny thing is I ended up, you know, working with her eventually at, at ABX. So, yeah, it was uh, it was something that was in my blood, I'd say, you know, that uh, I eventually got to that goal. Now, but, but let's talk about your time because you turned that internship into a job, didn't you? Could you talk about that? Right. Sure. So, uh, again, you know, six minute newscast overnight. Uh, they were long, uh, but we we produced our newscast with music and everything. So I'm going to cut to the chase, I think, on what happened there and why I ended up leaving. I was not a terribly serious news guy. Let me put it that way. I saw that the jocks were having so much fun. And that was in the back of my mind that, you know, eventually I want to, I think that's what I want to do. But they also told me at the time that I could go from being a jock to a newsman, but I couldn't go from being a newsman to a jock. And that leads us to what happened next. Dick Hungate became the new programmer program director at W4. And I think JJ was trying to focus on the morning show. Dick came in and we met him just before Christmas at our Christmas party. And he came up to Steve Mankevich and I and said, you guys do the best rock and roll news I've ever heard in my life. Nobody tunes you out. Keep doing what you're doing. Love it. Very cool. My dad passed away that week. Christmas was a week away. And uh, I was on the air with uh, overnights with Greg St. James was the jock. And back in the day, Rip and Read on Associated Press, it's much like the internet these days, believe everything that you see. Well, it was Associated Press. So whatever came over the AP that, you know, it had to be truthful. So I used to do a back page story that was either human interest or comedic or something. That was the last thing I did in the newscast. So I got this story over the Associated Press about a woman's golf tournament down in Georgia called the International Tournament. And they didn't qualify the women by their golf handicap. They qualified them by their bra size. So melon and, you know, grapefruit and stuff like that. So I read through this story about the International Golf Tournament. And I said, you know, Greg, the funny thing about this, the acronym for the International Tournament is TIT. Little pause, laughs. We didn't belabor it. He, he goes into the music. About five minutes later, Fowler, hotline. Step into my office. Why? Because you're fucking fired. 
Yeah, they, he fired me for saying tit at three o'clock in the morning. He used it as an acronym in a news story. After telling us we were the greatest thing, you know, he'd ever heard in rock radio, apparently that was too much for him. And uh, I, I went in that morning hours later when he came into the office and, and pretty much had a face-to-face with him, told him he was, you know, somewhat stupid. But anyway, <laughs> not only did he fire me, he called Steve Monkevich up while he was on vacation for Christmas and fired him over the phone. Oh, my. Wow. And within six months, no less than, I think, three people left that radio station because of Dick Hungate. That was on a Friday. On Monday, I was hired at ABX to be a weekend jock. So so, 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 you went from being news, now you're going to be like a jock, and that's what you wanted yeah. anyway, now, isn't it? Yeah, now I'm going to have fun. So John Duncan was a program director at ABX, and uh, he hired me without, you know, I threw a tape together over the weekend, basically, you know, doing jock stuff. And they hired me, and I did weekends for a while, and then eventually uh, Mike Mayer, uh, went to Riff, and uh, I ended up getting his overnight job at ABX. And to finish off ABX, I was the last one on the air on WABX, January 13th, 1983, switched ownership. I pretty much killed the mic, and uh, I had the last four hours as ABX. Wow. Well, there's a couple questions I have about ABX. First and foremost, did you did you realize what a special station? I mean, look here we are in 2022, and and it's one of the biggest Facebook pages around as far as 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 far as how many people are uh, love it. WABX I contend, and I've said this to John O'Leary many times. ABX is synonymous with Town Club and Bablo in most people's view. Uh, yeah. Did you uh, did you know how special it was when you were working well, there? We felt it was special. We you know we. We appreciated the history of it, too. It was the second oldest FM progressive station in the country after KSAN in San Francisco. But the problem with ABX is the signal was weak, so the numbers were never big. The dedication, the TSL, the time spent listening, all that stuff was very strong, but we never had the ratings. In judging from, you know, the Facebook group, uh, we, we had a very strong audience, stronger than any station I've ever worked for. Well, it's no secret. And I've told this story a few times on this podcast. Um, you know what I, the, my, my parents listened to country music and the first time they left me alone to babysit my siblings, I must've been 12 or 13. I called my uncle and I was like, where on the dial can I find rock and roll? And he sent me to 99.5 WABX and I haven't been the same since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, and, and some of these names I'm going to ask you about here in a minute, but, but uh, what was it like to be a jock at WABX and, and even for just three years, that must've just been awesome. Oh, it was incredible. Uh, at the same time I was the MC at Harpo's. So I was introducing local and international and uh, acts, you know, four days a week. Pretty much. So I was getting both sides of it at the time, enjoying, you know, the the music scene, I guess, and, and you know, absorbing all the Detroit bands that, that I could. And there was a lot of great bands in Detroit at that time, too. Oh, my God. It's, yeah, it, without saying, uh, again, probably the best music community in the world. Um, I believe still to this day, I think the depth of talent that we've had here over the decades is incomparable. I don't think anybody can match Detroit. And I've been, I've been all over the world 
and and been to concerts all over the world. I, you know, I agree with Bob Seger. There's no audience like a Detroit audience. That's right. The and home. You know, yeah. I had Twelve years in Vegas, and and saw a lot of acts in Vegas too. And it it just doesn't compare to Detroit. Um, yeah, Vegas, one of my favorite cities, and I don't even gamble. I just like to go. We're in, in fact, I'm going to be there next month seeing Van Morrison. Um, hey, listen, uh, I want to ask you a question about ABX before we move on uh, from from that. The next item on your resume is walk me through what a, what a normal. How did you prepare for your show? And 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 walk me through maybe a, a, a you know a shift. Drugs, Ron. I think I learned from one of the best I've ever been around, Jim Sote. Jim would come in and sit in the front lobby at ABX and he'd have a fifth estate, New York Times, and usually a free press. And he'd read these papers for probably an hour prep before he got into the studio. He would go in the studio and in inverse order, pull the albums for a show and stuff that he would put sets together and themes and, and he would do it in again in an inverse order. So the last being on the bottom and he'd put his feet up on the counter, he'd lean over, pull the mic and start the show. He was remarkable. Wow. He, and he, so that's who you learned from. That had to be pretty good education. The, that was the creative side that I learned from. And I will say before we get into everything else and in, in the history of my career, the thing that I'm most proud of and the thing that I think was my strength as being a jock was getting you from point A to point B without you hitting the button. Right. It wasn't what I was saying after or before the records. It was what I was doing with the music. I'm a highly creative. That was, that was what I did. You, you took a Segway. listener on a journey. Yeah. Segways and sets and themes is what I did. And uh, when I would have other jocks call me, during my shift and go, dude, that was incredible. You know, that solidified what, you know, I felt I was doing. And, and I learned from others too, that I thought at the time were is just as good or better. Chuck Santoni being one, I used to listen to Chuck for hours, uh, listen to him put sets together. Karen Savelli was that way. She was very good at being creative. Arthur Penhollow before things got over formatted was one of the best I've ever heard at putting sets together. So that is totally gone from radio, probably since the early 80s when the consultants took over. We don't have those type of people. The gym lads on XM, you know, still creative. But I listened to him, and I'm sorry, but I don't think he's that talented. I think he's, he's talented in the sense that he, he's creative. But when I listen to him, his voice is good. But it's like, wow, how did this guy get this tremendous, you know, respect is probably because how we put a show together right well and, and to that note you know one of the things that i'm I've, I've made no secret i'm very jealous of your generation of of djs is you know I'm, most of your career was spent stifled like myself as far as picking your own music but in those days you were picking your your own music especially at abx right weren't you picking your own music yeah, sure. so yeah talk to me about the research you did it were you constantly listening to music obviously you were you mentioned you would try to take people on a journey through the moods of the music and and kind of take him along for a ride but as far as the specific music you picked you could you could play a song on your show that might not be played on abx for another week or two sure so yeah. so my and question is is what was your preparation as far as selecting the music for your show specifically you know, honestly, uh, Ron, I, I probably flew by the seat of my pants. Uh, I created it as I went along. I heard the stuff in my head, 
and I heard what I, you know, what I recalled, you know, I, I recall segues I did in 1981 that when I did it, I just went, Oh my God, that was good. Um, <laughs> and I'll give you a prime example. And it still sticks in my head to this day. Yardbirds for your love ends with a bongo Tom kind of sound dun, 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 like that. And at work down under starts the way and it elevates. And I was working with albums, not CDs or anything else. It was vinyl. And I got those beats to hit perfectly follow, you know, one to the other. Nice. So I went, Oh yeah. And, 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 and if you were off by a millisecond, it wouldn't have sounded good, but I hit it perfectly. And to this day, it's one of the greatest accomplishments I ever had in radio. And the funny thing is listeners, most don't pay attention to that stuff, but if but the pros do, the, car, the, the others do yeah, you're riding in the car. And even if you don't pay attention, you probably go, wow, that was pretty cool. Right. Um, and I, you know, I would cross over stuff, you know, for eight, 10, 12 seconds, you know, working fades and getting stuff to come up under fades and, you know, knowing that something has a cold ending or a cold vocal start, or, you know, you don't on a fade, you don't start the next song with a cold vocal over the fade. It, you know, it just doesn't work. So that, that kind of stuff is a lost art these days. Nobody does that anymore. You know, who the people that do it are the ones that are club jocks right. and festival jocks that make a million dollars, you know, a weekend. <laughs> doing that stuff and and we were doing it on radio and nobody paid us you know obviously we buy music differently and we we consume it differently and and to be honest with you recently i i went out and i bought the cd of silk sonic i'm, I'm loving silk sonic and that's a whole other <laughs> subject but yeah. that was the first time i went out and bought music and i went out and bought it rather than buying it on itunes simply because i wanted to read the liner notes which leads to yeah. my question. That that's one of the things that really people I think lose sight of is, you know, you're picking this music, but did you ever get sidetracked because when when those records came out, especially the dual records and the live records like Bob Seger and Kiss and other things, they were doing so many creative things with the liner notes in the records. Did you ever find yourself getting distracted and maybe finding content for your show in those little pieces oh, of information? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you would find content wherever you could find it, honestly. Um, but it's, you know, again, my ear was probably my best weapon. It, it just, I, I hear things differently, I think, than, than most. So my ability to, to know where I'm going next, I would just narrow it down to being thematic in the sense that it was a title theme or if it was a sound theme. For instance, it, you, you can't go wrong going from a foreigner to a journey because they're both stadium rock acts, that kind of thing. The ability to create and mix those genres of rock was was a big deal you know when i when i got into the clubs doing it um when i was working overnights i worked at a couple of clubs actually spinning records and and i took pride in the fact that i could go from acdc to the b52s and not lose anybody on the dance floor kind of thing so if i'm going to pat myself on the back for anything other than the creativity aspect is that i think i have a good ear and, and that gets into what happened, you know, in the following years with being a music director and a program director. Now, did you learn anything from the other jocks? Because there was some big names there. You mentioned Chuck Santoni, oh, yeah. you had Jerry like Lubin, said, Dan Carlisle, Dennis Frawley. I mean, absolutely. there was a Mark, 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 Mark Perreno. 
All the above. Parental, I was, he was just about, I think he was about gone by the time I got to ABX as a jock. He was there when I was doing news, but uh, he was gone by the time I became a jock. But yeah, I mean, Costan is an encyclo encyclopedia of, of information an ability to draw, you know, he can tell you what temperature it was at the Stones concert in, you know, 1975 and what day of the week it was. He was, you know, there's certain people you drew certain things from. And and Steve was information-wise almost, he and O'Leary in abundance of information about the bands. And, and, and I would listen to them for that reason. And then I would fall back on my ability to create and, you know, maybe steal some of that information that I learned, you know, two days prior kind of thing. So, right. What, uh, from, yeah. you worked there for three years. Do you have one favorite memory or maybe a, a fond memory that you look back and like, that was just the coolest moment ever from those days? Um, maybe one that stands out. Patty Smith, Patty Smith, Ted Nugent, probably because it was in studio. You're aware of that story. Wow, share it with me if you would. Well, it was uh, Ted saying some not so nice things about Patty and she was out in the hallway and she came in the studio and let it rip and just took him to task. And you chewed him up in the studio. Oh, that must have been a sight. There's still audio. Jerry Lubin was on the air. There's still audio of that. WABX. Theodore, Theodore. Yes, and Theodore says hi to young Patricia who just sleezed in the door out there. I see you out there, Patty. Don't pretend you're not here. We smelled you when you crossed Woodward and Gratiot. What was it we were talking about while listening to this? The, oh, ah, yes, the new you said band. you have a new band. Here she is. Have a seat. Patty's going to make a statement. Out. She's going to make a statement. It's one o'clock. One o'clock, my rectum, honey. Give me the mic. She's going to get one o'clock. You're from New York. I'm from Detroit. I am from New York. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, guys. We can't have any fights here in the studio. Don't touch me. I know you said that last time. Get your fucking hands off me. Well. On the air. Take your hands off me and out. All right. All right. We got it. Okay. Now, I don't know if I dare turn on Ted. I'm sorry. Okay. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Patty Smith is my sincere apology. Wait, Ted, start that sentence again. I said if there is somehow I have offended Patty Smith, and I wasn't aware of her change of attitude in life, well, I listen, really apologize. Could we, could we even uh, really not talk about that? Patty will be here and uh, chat with us, and maybe uh, we'll get into it or Go what nuts. have you. Um, I'll, I'll leave the Bible here. But I have to admit that I've never it's had nice. anything like this happen to me before. No, I was, <laughs> that was pretty heavy. I was pretty heavy. And uh, I'm overwhelmed. And uh, Amazing. Thank God that I had a, a tune-up on the really? truth. Really? I could uh, give myself three and a half minutes to calm down. Thank God she only weighs 60 pounds. Well, that was one of them. And so, Tay, uh, I mean, just the things I learned from watching him and literally watching him because I was a news guy and, and, you know, news producer at the time. So um, watching somebody work was just as educational as just listening to them. So and see, you know, how they did those things. And again, um, you know, I revert back to W4 and, and the, the Santonis and Savellis and, and just, you know, stealing little things from them and how they did it and why they did it and uh, using it in my creativity. Very cool. That's how it's supposed to be done. You're supposed to learn from the yeah. people you respect and kind of take steal a little bit from everybody and make it your own. So you were ABX flying high. Why you, you went to, to Denver at KAZY. Why did you, uh, what, what led to that change? I was trying to stay in Detroit. Alan called me and said, Hey, you want to come out to Denver? I know what you want to do. You want to become a music director, a program director. He said, this is the place. Come on out. So without even an audition tape, just by his selling me uh, to the general manager, I got the job and went out there and did early evenings. And uh, that was a whole nother story. 
Now that's a whole different market. I mean, now, now it's a whole different animal. That must have been completely different from ABX. Talk to me about yes, what. Because, how was it when you first got there? Well, we had three rock stations on the air, KBPI, and there's KBCO in Boulder, which was a AAA or a adult alternative. It was pretty progressive at the time. So we were competing against them. And uh, Alan was the acting program director. I was the acting music director at the time because we didn't have either. And uh, we tried to do things our way democratically. When we had music meetings, we'd invite the promotions person in and the general manager or the, the, the owner's daughter worked at the radio station. And uh, we invited her into music meetings too. We we're doing kind of a rock 40 when we first started. And I'm going to kind of condense the, the two years I was there into a very short conversation here and give you the highlights. Um, I was sexually harassed by the owner's daughter. Holy crap. Um, every time she'd walk by, she'd pinch my butt. She'd invite me to dinner all the time. Holy crap. She was the least uh, person that I'd ever want to spend any time with. Let me put it that way. Uh, by personality and looks. Can, how much can I use as far as uh, language on this? Well, it's a podcast. Okay? You can you can elaborate podcast. as much and swear as much as you want. Yeah, say what you want. Well, one of the biggest mistakes I made in my life uh, involved the owner's daughter. Uh, we had a music meeting one time. Quiet Riot's Metal Health came out. We weren't playing any metal whatsoever. And this song, I heard it in the meeting playing, this is a smash. There's, there's no doubt in my mind this is going to be big. Let's day part it at least. Let's play at seven to midnight. Let's just, we got to play it. And the owner's daughter said, no, we're not playing that on my radio station because we weren't playing metal at the time. And I said, we have to play it because it's a, it's a smash. It's a, I didn't like the song, but I knew it was a smash. We had to play it. We're a rock station. The top 40 is going to play it before us. We're going to look foolish. Nope, absolutely not playing that on my radio station. I said, let's day part it seven to midnight. Let's play it somewhere. Nope. Ellen, you stupid. And I'm not going to tell you what I said, but it was one of the worst things that ever came out of my mouth to a woman. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And uh, it, it's kind of sealed my fate. I didn't get the music director's job. Um, but uh, within time, uh, we had a program director come into the station that was hired out of Las Vegas. He is now running the Beasley group here in Detroit. His name is Scott Jamison. And Scott came into the radio station and as program director and a long story short about him, uh, he didn't last but a little over a year and ended up getting fired. I was doing seven to midnight. The general manager at the time was became Chuck Browning. And uh, Chuck was one of my favorite human beings and general managers along with buzz in the business and chuck even though i wasn't music director i programmed the weekends for us because he liked the way i put music together and funny thing little caveat about that i had a jock on the air that was doing afternoons i was early evenings and he was jealous of what i was doing and literally even though i was setting all the segues up in the programming for the weekend, he would flip the songs and, and play them out of sequence. So they sounded like crap. And he did it to spite me. 
but anyway, that was only one part of what what was going on there, and then he he had he did another thing that wasn't very honest. So, so it doesn't sound Denver was a good experience. I mean, you were there for two it, years. It but... was. It wasn't. I love the city. I love you know kind of what we were doing at one time. Chuck Browning, uh, before Scott Jamison took over as PD, we were we went directly at KBCO and started playing literally two thousand songs, but we were playing it in a different slightly different format than what BCO was doing. We were trying to garner the 25 to 49. So we were playing a lot of acoustic stuff, you know, just depth cuts. We were playing probably four and five deep on albums. And it was a wonderful time to be there. But then Scott came in, we adjusted the format, kind of went to a rock 40 again, where we were playing Michael Jackson and stuff like that at the time. And Scott ended up getting fired. And the funny thing about Scott was, uh, and I'll put this out there, even though I don't know if he'll ever be listening, but uh, we called him Little Hitler. Um, Scott was the kind of guy that programmed by, you know, telling you to do something, not asking you to do something. Uh. But I hung around with him outside the radio station. We had a blast. He was a great guy to hang. But uh, at work, when I walked through those doors, he would just say, do this, do that. He wouldn't say, hey, can you do this for me? So anyway, Scott gets fired. You know, I'm not going to be music director, program director of this radio station. It ain't going to happen because of what I said to the owner's daughter. So Scott gets a phone call one day from his former GM in Vegas at Comp and says, I know you're, you're out of work. I know you're looking for something else. But can you come down and run the radio station until you find something and find your replacement he looked i was sitting there and he looked at me he says i have my replacement already oh and she said all right great bring him along so i had to make a decision at the time of coming back to detroit and being a utility guy for doug podell at wheels and just doing everything and not having a shift primarily just a weekend shift or going to vegas and eventually becoming the program director of comp so um seems like a no-brainer to me well, it seems like it, but remember, this is 1985, so it was a plus, different plus city. Plus Detroit's your home, too. Yeah, plus Detroit was my home. I always wanted to be home. So my immediate thought was, six, I'm six foot three, and I immediately thought of five foot 11, six foot tall women showgirls. So, well, to that, be fair, that, this, is, this is a PD position, though, right? This is a potential PD oh, position. Okay, okay. I'm not getting the PD job just yet. I'm going to be the midday jock at comp. So I go in and I'm the midday jock and kind of like the assistant PD. And there's a guy doing mornings called Big Marty. Been there from the origination of the station, 10 years, doing mornings. He's infamous. Um, <clears throat> back then there was a club called the Las Vegas Troubadour. Every night would go to the Las Vegas Troubadour and drink Jack until like four or five in the morning. Then he would go do his radio show. And then he'd get off the radio show, do his music director stuff, go home and sleep, get up, eat dinner, go back to the bar. This was every day cycle. So I'm doing middays and Scott, I'm going to try and again, shorten this Scott Jamison ends up getting a job at KYYS in Kansas city. And the general manager was a woman, Nancy Reynolds. And she came to me and she says, come here, I want to talk to you. And she said, 
The, jo- the jocks are excited. The sales staff is excited. We can't wait for you to be program, di- program director. You start on Monday. This was Thursday. Weekend goes by. She calls me into her office again. She, she's crying and she says, I, I'm sorry, but I can't give you the program director's job. And I said, why? Well, Big Marty, who had been there again, 10 years, had the offer that anytime the program director's job came over, and he had first right refusal. Well, Marty had never taken the job because he didn't want the responsibility because he wanted to hang at the Troubadour and drink all night and do a show and go home and sleep. So Marty, because I wanted to take this radio station to a format that played library music. We were doing, we were kind of, again, a rock 40 because it was a popular format at the time. So it was a very narrow list, mostly currents and recurrents, you know, recent songs not so much library music, but Fred Jacobs had started WMMQ in Lansing, the classic rock format. So it was all everybody was talking about. And we didn't have any competition in Vegas for comp. There was no other rock stations. So I said, somebody is going to come into the market and do a classic rock station. They're going to kick our ass. There's no way we can compete with that if we don't start playing library music. And Marty wanted to keep it rock 40. He wanted to keep it current. So he didn't want me to be program director. So he took the job. And I looked at Nancy and I said, you Nancy, you know what's going to happen. And I said, he's going to go balls to the wall for a week or two. And then he's going to fall back into his old habits of drinking all night. He he literally, when he got off the air at 10 o'clock in the morning, he would sleep on a couch in the studio and he snored like a bear and we would put the microphone on him and stuff, but he'd sleep for an hour, get up, do his music director stuff and then go home. Well, now he's a program director. So he's got to stay longer and work with sales and all that. Well, it lasted a couple of weeks and he started fading already. And she, she had told me, she said, you know, let him fade and, and then we'll let you take over. Well, classic rock came into the market at KKLZ in the first book. There was only two books a year at the time. And the first book took our double digit share down to a three and came into the market with a nine share and did exactly what I said they were going to do, which was kick our ass with classic rock. So what's Nancy do? Kills it, two birds with one stone. She hires the program director away from KKLZ to take over our radio station. You were expecting that job, weren't you? Yeah. What's she do with Todd? She gives him an operations manager title, but still not the boss of the program director. He's still my boss, even though I'm operations manager. And I start working with sales and advertising and stuff like that. It's the only thing I got. I'm sure at this time you were like, I wish I would have took Podell's offer. (laughs) Well, that entered my mind, but uh, I'm I'm still hanging in because I meet this program director and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about somebody in, in a not very nice way here. The floor is yours. Uh, Sherman Cohen had never done rock radio before. He'd only done top 40. That's why he was successful at classic rock because they were only playing the hits. They weren't playing album, album cuts. So Sherman comes in and Marty's still music director. I'm assistant program director. In our first music meeting with Sherman Cohen, he goes, who's this Stevie Ray Vaughan guy? And Marty and I looked at him and said, well, it's kind of the next coming of Jimi Hendrix. I don't want him on the air. Get him off. And our jaws hit the floor. We're like, wow. 
you don't want to play Stevie Ray Vaughan. So long story short, again, Sherman had, you know, he had a, I learned something from him. He used a flow chart for tempo, red dots, green dots, that kind of thing. On, on, we were still using a card system then. So you couldn't play two ballads back to back. You could, you know, things like that. So it was like a sine wave, you know, you never could start high to go to low. You had, it had to go high, low, high, low, high, low kind of thing. So I kind of learned a little something from that, but at the same time, I never paid attention to the way I created sets of music. If I wanted, if it was a rainy, cloudy day, I would do four ballads in a row, you know, Pink Floyd stuff, you know, stuff that, you know, that kind of thing. So that never affected me that way, but I also looked at it as working in a sense. So anyway, that was our first taste of Sherman Cohen was Stevie Ray Vaughan, and he didn't make it any better in the days following. So I was having trouble with Sherman as, as him being my boss and knowing that he took the job that I should have gotten. So one day we hired a new weekender and she came into the studio one day and said, hey Todd, will you listen to my air check uh, and tell me what you think? because she was fairly new. And I said, sure. I said, isn't Sherman doing an air check session with you? She said, yeah, I just want to get a second opinion. I said, okay, well, that's cool. I said, you know, about Sherman, I said, you know, I probably won't even do an air check with him because I really don't respect him. So the next day, Sherman Cohen comes into the studio and he says, so you don't respect me, huh? Step into my office. Why? Because you're fucking fired. Fired me on the spot. Turns out, she ended up marrying him. Ah, there you go. Getting my title, my shift. There you go. Had kids with him. She starts doing a shock radio show because Howard was busting out at the time. Replaces Big Marty, who had been on mornings from the very beginning. Puts him on afternoons. She does a shock show in the morning. Has great success for a couple of books and then fades. Both Sherman and her got, her name was Stacy. They ended up both getting fired after about a year. Um, funny thing about me and how I ended up leaving Vegas, and this is a radio story here too, buddy. Uh, got to the point where I was trying to work on the West Coast now because I was in Vegas. I figured I'd go to Cali and, and hit one of the markets out there and stay in the sunshine. And I was running out of money and I ended up moving in with one of my listeners into his Aerosmith, <laughs> into his Aerosmith room, which was ceiling to floor, all walls, Aerosmith posters and album covers and things. Was he from I, Boston or he just liked the, the he just loved No, them? he just liked them. I slept on a single air mattress on the floor with nothing else in the room and that lasted exactly one month. And I said, I can't do, I ended up moving in with the program director of the AM station that, you know, was a sister of the one I worked with comp, man, you were, you were hit like you hit bottom quick, man. I hit bottom. That, that was the lowest point of, of, of my radio life was that, that month. And to make things worse after moving in with this program director, he, he brought in another roommate who stole money from me and, long story short there but my mother went into intensive care back in Dearborn so I flew back uh, she was not able to take care of herself wasn't going to be able when she got out of the hospital so I moved back 
to Dearborn, take care of my mom. And this is, I'm a strong, very strong believer in the word fate. The day my unemployment ran out was the day my mother looked at me in the eye and said, I can take care of myself now. It was the day that Dick Kernan from Specs called me and said, they're looking for a program director at MMQ in Lansing. So I applied for the job and got it. All on that one day, it was it was crazy how that all turned out. But anyway, I lasted a year there and uh, the ownership, I don't know if you've got any more stories about that radio station, but Tim Segrist, uh, Jeff Crow, a few guys worked there and all said the same thing. And they, I wish they would have told me before. <laughs> I wanted the program director title, you know, that was, that was what was driving me. And uh, I incorporated a lot of things that I learned and my jocks turned out loving me. So it lasted about a year. I had the, I had the most glowing, rep, uh, you know, report after the first six months that you would ever see, and then six months later, it was a complete opposite. Yeah. It's 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 funny how often how often yeah. things like that really escalate. Anyway, I, yeah, I ended up getting fired. Fred, unfortunately, was you know, and his brother were part of, you know, looking at what I was doing. And and the funny thing, it when I was in MMQ. I put a master list of classic rock because it was a period where classic rock was starting to get really boring, uh, redundant. It was the same, same shit all the time. It was starting to lose its strength, you know, 250 songs. And I put in, and they were debating at the time whether or not they were going to start incorporating the eighties classic rock into a, the picture the Def Leppards and people like that. And Fred and I talked about it and said, you know, we could do a lot of day partying. We could play a lot of that stuff at night when our demos are a little bit younger. Let's do that. And I put together a master list of music that I felt was the direction we needed to go. Well, they never used it at my station, but Fred incorporated that in all his other stations that he, and I never got credit for it. And they would probably say that I'm not telling the truth, but I know that's what happened is a lot of the other stations incorporated my master list. What, but, but what year was that, that that happened? 87. 87. No, I was going to say, Fred's a hero of mine. Fred's, Fred is brilliant. Fred, I, nothing against, but at the time and what transpired, you know, it wasn't right. It just, you know, it worked out. Uh, unfortunately, I was taking advantage of me being program director, and I was playing things in my morning show that, right. you know, wasn't weren't in the format. But I was also, whenever I even went from mornings to afternoons. The funny thing is back then it was diaries. And, you know, they said that, you know, the proof in the pudding didn't come right after the book. It took six months before your ratings showed because of, you know, people filling diaries out. But whenever I moved from mornings to afternoons or afternoons to mornings, my numbers went up. Right. And, you know, you knew what you were talking about. Yeah. I knew what I was doing. But the funny thing was I was telling my jocks not to do stuff that I was doing. Uh, so okay. I, you know, I take the blame for, for, you know, being yeah. do as I say, not as yeah, I do. Being the parent, the PD, that's what yeah, your job is. It's a different time. Yeah, but right. a pretty cool, you know, radio, radio, uh, format. So, and you know what, to be fair, know. I mean, that, that's the, that's a, 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 the reason I love that format is because there's so much, you have so much to choose from. I mean, we, I mean, we, yes. I've talked to Mike Staff about this. Think about, I mean, Nirvana's classic rock now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, the depth cuts. If you use Detroit as a as a model, we could play 
fourth and fifth cuts off of albums in Detroit because the people knew the music. You could play a fourth cut from a Journey album because, you know, people knew Journey. You could play 20, 25 cuts from Jay Giles where, you know, now you'll get two centerfold and, you know, yeah, freeze frame. If you're lucky, so, flamethrower or love stinks. Yeah. You know. well, if you're, yeah, that ain't happening. <laughs> Pat Benatar's first album. We were not playing females much on rock radio at the time. That album came out, and I, besides staring at the album cover every night in the production studio, I listened to that record over and over, and I would go into Joe Erbil, was a music director at the time, said, Joe, why are we not playing this? This is some of the best stuff I've ever heard. Why are we not playing Pat Benatar? Long story short, they, we eventually started playing Pat Benatar. And when Pat came to town, now this is Todd, the news guy, got in not long after the interview in the studio and got to, you know, take pictures with her. Mark McEwen was there at the time. I remember Mark from CBS Mornings yep. and, and in the loop and everything else one of my best friends in, in radio, I was asked to do the stage intro to Pat's first concert in Detroit. It was at the Motor City Roller Rink, a little riser that was a foot tall. That was the very first stage introduction I ever did was Pat Benatar. And it was because I was so dedicated to her album and, and the energy I put into try and get her played on the radio. Fast forward to back to Vegas real quick. We used to do uh, a conference call once a week with a bunch of stations on the West Coast and talk about new music. Well, I was the person that would sit down and listen to the entire album and grade every song on the album. So when we did these conferences on, on Mondays or Tuesdays, whatever it was, it became a point that was like, you know, I would start reading stuff off like, you know, this cut, this cut, this cut. After a few weeks, it was we started the conference call off by saying, all right, let Todd go because Todd does his homework. And that was a time like even when Slippery One Wet came out from Bon Jovi, I told the conference call, I said, there's six singles on this album. Oh, no way. Six? Get out of here. I said, there's six singles on this album. You weren't Count wrong. You weren't wrong. And I wasn't wrong. And, and I did that with quite a few things. But that was, again, a highlight that, you know, I was right about. Um John Cougar, I, that was another guy that I had to push at W4 to get played. And, and, you know, I said, this guy's phenomenal. We got to get him on the air. And we eventually did. So now I've left MMQ and Lansing. We'll speed up to where we were at. And uh, I was out of work just for about a week or so. And I went and visited a friend, uh, Scott Brown, who was a promotions director at Riff. And he convinced the PD to hire me for weekends. And I started doing weekends, and I was also uh, producing Ken Calvert and Lynn Woodison's morning show. And long story short, at Riff, I ended up having to make a decision whether I was going to get into the record business or if I was going to be music director at Riff. I went through the interview process for uh, Warner Brothers and ended up being the guy they were going to hire. And I had to go to Jim Pemberton, the program director at Riff at the time. I said, what is my chance of getting this music director position? It says, you know, right now they're offering me, I'm sorry, not Warner Brothers, Atlantic. I said, right now I'm getting the, the local Atlantic job. 
what is the chance I'm going to get the music director job? Because Costan and I were both up for the job. He says, I said, regardless, I'm going to be working with you either as a record rep or as the music director. And uh, Jim said, I think we're going to hire you as the music director. So I took that job rather than taking the radio or the record job. Had to be so a thrill. Now you're at Riff. Now you're now you're with the big boys again. Doing weekends and fill-ins. You know, when Penn Hollow went on vacation, was sick. I was the fill. You know, I was the guy that filled in, and uh, doing a lot of production work too. But uh, yeah, I ended up getting the music director's job, and boy, did that become frustrating. And I hate to bash my buddy because he's uh, he's still a friend. He's on Facebook, but Jim Pemberton, also known as Jim Kelly on the air. I'll give you a prime example of what happened at that with that uh, relationship. Um, we would do music meetings every week, and I would bring in a stack of music. I was one of the few music directors in town and in the country that would actually sit and talk to record reps, you know, about music and make recommendations about singles and things like that. They they enjoyed how much I, you know, how much I worked at it. I'm in a music meeting with Jim Pemberton uh, with a stack of music. Do you remember the song Three Strange Days from School of Fish? No, I don't. Sorry. Okay. Listen to that sometime. Three Strange Days, the band's called School of Fish. So I put the CD in the CD player and played it, and Jim nods his head and he says, wow, this is really good. Who is this? I said, School of Fish. Oh, we can't play that. So why? Just School of Fish. I don't think it'll work. Really? Okay. <laughs> Next week, same thing. Bring in my stack of music, throw the School of Fish CD in, Three Strange Days, shakes it, his head. He's like, oh, that's really good. Who is that? School of Fish. <laughs> oh, okay, by that. I said, Jim, you've twice now said this is really good. You can't, Led Zeppelin, well, you're not going to play a band because of the name of the band? I said, you know, and he was a one that would follow R&R, back page. If it made it into the top 20, we'd add it. We weren't, at the time, breaking any new ground, unfortunately. But that happened three or four successive weeks. He didn't remember the name of the band, remember, you know, thought the song was great. And he, after a month, added it because it was screaming up the chart. Uh -huh. So that's the kind of stuff I dealt with as a music director riff. Again, you might know what you're talking about. Not that Jim doesn't, mm -hmm. but you know, sometimes when two people well, are so headstrong on it and he, you know, in fairness to him, he was a guy that went by the numbers. Yes, he absolutely did. And that's why, he, you know, he was safe and conservative and it worked, you know, but I also at the time said, you know, I've got these jocks, I've got Calvert, I've got Costan, I've got Savelli, I've got Penhollow. And and we were, you know, we we're mid-grade, basically, as far as the numbers were concerned. We weren't kicking anybody's ass. And you've got all this history and heritage, and it's like we could be doing so much better if we did this. And I went to the general manager and and literally put a proposal together and all that and said, you know, we could be killing people right now if we did the right thing with music and uh that was probably not taken positively unfortunately right. and i did a couple other things you, you strike me as someone who is not afraid to share your opinion i was i was pretty rebellious <laughs> and you know and i talked to the record reps the same way and the funny thing is i i pretty much got the record job by you know committing to the fact that i said you know who listens to the music and who has the most 
input are the jocks. I said, when a record comes out, give it to the jocks. Don't just give it to the PD and the MD. Let the jocks hear it and send it to their house. That's how John Cougar, I, for some reason, I was a news guy and I got a cassette of John Cougar's first album at my house. And I said, that worked for me because I listened to it and I was like, oh my God, we got to play this guy. I need a lover. And uh, I said, you know, part of my interviews with uh, the record label was, you know, that's what we should be doing. We should be hitting these guys and, you know, they'll, they'll talk to the PD and the MD if they like something and there's a better chance you'll get it played. So that was one of my reasons for, you know, my madness too. Now, when and, you were at uh, Riff, who were some of the on-air talents? Who was doing the morning show? Calvin Woodison. Okay. Lynn and Ken, and then Karen Savelli and Penhall and Costan. And what year was this? It was 87 to 91. A lot of great yeah. music in that time. A lot of great music. There that was, through. and it was, you know, it was getting played, but it certainly wasn't the depth that, that we should have been doing again. You know, that's the beginning of, of consultants and, and they were tightening the lists up, you know, we were down to 250, 300 songs. It was maddening when you had to deal with stuff like, you know, I can't play the band because it's named school of fish. Really? <laughs> Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. What? That, did, that didn't scare you back in the seventies, sixties. So, so, I, so why, why did you end up leaving riff? What happened there? All right. This is, this is gets into very personal, stuff so I'm, well I'm I, you you can it. share as much or as little as you like i don't want if, well, i don't want you to I'm, think i'm mike wallace i'm just asking a question because <laughs> i honestly from what you from what you just prefaced it were like well here we go i don't i don't know what's coming i honestly don't well, know you say you know the reasons i was let you know for saying tit and then uh you know calling a, a owner's daughter a name and then uh you know not respecting the program director and actually telling somebody that you know those are the reasons i lost jobs other than format changes and ownership changes but at riff um unfortunately when i was music director i was getting married and all the record guys are guys and gals were competing to who could take care of todd the best for his wedding presents okay jim pemberton at the time said invite everybody to your wedding reception you won't believe the stuff you're going to get so this is the first time in my career i think i'm going to take advantage of being who i was what position i held and i'm gonna you know i'm gonna take advantage of it but not to the point of it being payola in other words there wasn't a thing i could do for a record label that it all had to go through jim and then through the consultant so we didn't play music based on what todd wanted to play but I was also the guy that did more for the record reps than anybody else in town, as far as at least talking about the music that they were providing us. So anyway, uh, I got the offer of, of plane tickets for my, we we're gonna go to Vegas for our honeymoon. I had different people offering different things. And one of the reps came to me, it was the person that took over the Atlantic job that I didn't take. And at the time, Michael Stevens, I don't know if you know that name, but he was the uh, regional Atlantic rep. And Michael was getting married too. So I'm having a bachelor party and I'm inviting all the record reps and they're gonna pay for the bachelor party because we're gonna have a bash. Go to a hotel in Southfield, just, just like the movie Bachelor Party, to, I have all these images yeah. in my head yes. right now. No, here there was probably five or six 
female record reps and probably five or six, you know, guys that, that worked us. So all the record reps are coming, you know, the guys are coming to the bachelor party and uh, it's a combo bachelor party for Mike, Michael and me. And the rep, the rep was a female for Atlantic that worked for Michael. And she came to me and she said, what are we going to get you and Julie for your, for your wedding reception or for your wedding gift? And I said, well, we're going to Vegas. I got the, you know, the plane ticket and the hotel had been taken care of. I said, we could use a rental car for a couple of days. Okay. Fast forward to the bachelor party. We're having fun, embarrassing Michael, kind of embarrassing me a little bit. All of a sudden there's a knock at the door. It's all five of the female record reps at the door want to come into the bachelor party. Uh oh. And I said, absolutely not. If you get naked, you can come in. Well, it turns out I found out much later, they were put up to it by the, the males. They said because their relationship with me that I'd let them in. And the guys were saying, there's no way. We'll bet, you know, bet you whatever you're not going to get in. Todd's not going to let you come in. Oh, yes, he is. He loves us. I said, absolutely not. Not unless you're getting naked. <laughs> About a week later, this is between wedding, bachelor party and wedding reception and wedding. Jim says, I need you to come to the office. So I come to the office. He said, we're hearing rumors that you're requesting gifts for your wedding. I said, I'm not requesting anything. I said, they're all offering me stuff. And I said, Jim, remember when you told me you won't believe the stuff you're going to get, invite all the records? I invited regionals and nationals too. And the reason I invited nationals and regionals was because the band that was going to play at my wedding reception, Skeleton Crew, they, I was trying to get them signed. And I wanted reps to see them play. They were going to play at my wedding reception. They won, what was the Ed McMahon show? Star Search. Star Search. They beat Beyonce's band in Star Search. That's how good they were. They won Star Search three times. Wow. And made it made it to almost the finals. Three and a quarter stars. Yeah. And and I wanted, you know, these reps to see them. So I invited all these people to my wedding reception. So anyway, we right before the wedding reception, two days before Thursday, the wedding reception was Saturday, called me in the office, said, We hear you're soliciting gifts from record reps. I said, there's absolutely no way I'm soliciting anything. Apparently the la- the, the lawyers got involved already. Step into my office. Why? Cause you're fucking fired. I had to sign off to get severance so I wouldn't sue them for wrongful termination because there was no proof of anything that I ever solicited anything. There was never any gifts you know, given. I hadn't received them yet. I didn't do anything for anybody that was provable because I couldn't do anything for anybody, but they fired me for literally payola, but I signed off to get seven because I was getting married. I was losing my job. I needed the money. So, I mean, I just, I just want to stop in that moment. You walk in the office, when you walked in, do you have any idea that you were going to be fired? Nope. No. What was going through your mind? Walk me through like how that transpired because that was shocking. It was, it was sudden. It was shocking. It was sudden. It was like, what are you talking about? And, uh, they apparently, you know, and my assumption again, too, is all the talk that I did about wanting to take Jim's job. You know, I think Michael Stevens, 
was primary, probably the person because I turned down. He was the one that recommended me for the Atlantic job and pushed to get me the job. And then I didn't take it. I think he was pissed off. And I think he was pissed off the fact that he was slightly embarrassed at the bachelor party. And I think he was the one that basically said he's soliciting. And that kicked off the investigation that few days and whatever. And they do, said, do you think well, if you didn't invite those reps that, that you'd still work at Rift today? You know, I don't know how that would have changed at the time if I wouldn't have gotten Michael pissed off, I guess. Uh, I think that was a bigger deal, uh, the fact that I didn't take the job from, with him. It was than, than anything. I think he was slighted to the fact that, you know, it made him very unhappy that I didn't take the job after all the effort he put in to get, get me there. Yeah. But the funny thing is I'm a music director and I'm helping him anyway by, you know, doing the job that I did. But, uh, yeah, the same. And I literally, Ron, got blackballed. Emotionally, it was a very tough period. And here I'm out of work. I'm getting married. My wife's pregnant and I don't have a job. Yeah, how'd that, that was, play out? How'd that play out? That, that, that would probably worked out to be, you know, other than the Aerosmith room for the 30 days, that probably had more of an impact on my career than anything was that that being blackballed. I yeah, because because that's even though nothing stuck, I mean that reputation it, it doesn't right. it doesn't leave exactly. you. I had people Chuck Santonio was at Wheels PD at the time and wanted to hire me but couldn't. You know, I I had job opportunities that probably would have happened had that not, you know that not happened. So I was out of work for a year after that. My wife's having a baby and, you know, not, you know, nine months later, basically. And, uh, but you know, the, what the good news out of that is I was a house husband for a year and I got to, you know, grow with my child. You just got to see all the first, right? You got to be yeah, in awe yeah. of every time this baby discovered something. She came home to a clean house, laundry done and <laughs> dinner on the table. So I did all those things. I was a house husband. So, in the following year, uh, it was about the time Wow FM was about to hit hit the airwaves, and I had talked to those guys about a AAA format at the time. It would have been 1991, so the River was was doing okay. I thought it was pre-River. I think yeah, it was pre-River, and I was trying to convince people in town to do a AAA format. Steve Monkevich ended up, and it was Bob Schumann at the time doing news on. They were starting a Wow FM. And I ended up getting hired as a weekend newscaster on WOW FM. And that eventually turned into afternoon sportscaster on WOW FM. Well, before they started, I don't know if you remember the format, but it was the first FM talk station in the country. Everybody was always doing a talk on AM. Right. We were going to make the attempt to do FM talk. And uh, prior to them doing that format, they had you know, looked into maybe doing young country in Detroit and they decided to go with the FM talk because they thought it would be impactful. The problem with the FM talk format at the time was we were doing news and traffic 24 hours a day. We were doing traffic at three o'clock in the morning in Detroit every 10 minutes. Made no sense whatsoever. And the problem with the format is if you're doing talk, you get into a conversation with somebody, you'd be two, three minutes into it and say, well, we got a break for traffic or we got a break for sports and news. There was eight breaks an hour. So we're six months into the format and they call us all into work one day and they put five of us in one room and 20 of the other people in another room. 
And the problem with what they did when they started the format with Wow FM, they hired people from outside of Detroit because they wanted fresh blood. But the problem was they came in, they moved their families into houses, whether they rented or bought or whatever, put their kids in school. Uh, they couldn't pronounce Kaju or, you know, Grossbeck or, right. you know, words like that. And it was, they literally were made fun of all the time. So six months into it, they call us into the station and five of us that are sitting in one room looking at each other going, what the hell is going on? Why are we here and why are all those other people in the other room? Well, they let us sit there for literally an hour and a half. And they finally came in and said, we're changing format. We're going young country and we want you guys to stay. Todd, we want you to do a seven to midnight call and request show on young country. I had never done country before. I didn't have any idea what country, young country was, let alone I wasn't familiar with a lot of old country. Right. So I did the format that night, the first night, and I was taking phone calls, and not one person I know of asked for anything other than Willie and Waylon and <laughs> else. They weren't. They were not separating it from young country. So I came in the next morning and I told the guys, I you know the bosses, I said. I don't think I can fake this orgasm for three months to figure this out. <laughs> um, this, this honestly is not going to work. And my wife was upset because I was giving up benefits in a full-time job. Right. But I said, there's just no way this is, you know, and honestly, nobody else knew what to do either because they didn't fill that position for over six months. They couldn't find anybody that knew what they were talking about. Long story short, again, I, you know, I was out of a job again, but the thing is, Bob Schumann, who was the news director, used me as his fill-in. Whenever he was sick or went on vacation, I would just pop into the station and do Bob's job. And I did that for quite, as it was young country, I probably did it at least a minimum of four or five times. So I was still kind of active at the time. Uh, I think the next place I ended up working was uh, 96.3 DVD. I eventually went to the Bear the bear was changing. Hold on a second. You went to DVD, which means you worked at the Fisher building. How, how did you, I, I worked at JR several times. How did you like going to the work? Wasn't it cool going there? Yeah, it was cool. It was awesome going to the Fisher building. Yeah. But that was another time. And Delisi was music director. I don't remember the PD's name, but the PD had a drug problem from what I remember. And he was going to lose his job. And I wanted that job desperately too. I wanted to, you know, again, do my music thing and, and make it work in the city and, and come up with a format that was going to work. And it got, and Buzz was the boss. Buzz was the GM at the time. And uh, it, it never happened. I eventually ended up at the Bear, 1027 The Bear with Nugent on mornings. How was that? that well, that was, that was cool, but it was the end, of, the end of the Bear, too. It was the last few months. Uh, Steve Black, who's now at Riff, was kind of the acting PD, and uh, Joe Wade Formicola. It was funny. It was the last few months of the format. We knew eventually, you know, it was going to change ownership. So Steve, nobody cared what I did, uh, and I played everything I wanted to. Basically, I almost went freeform. I still, I have tapes that I listened to of my shows, the last couple shows there. It's some of the best radio I've ever done. Very cool. uh, musically and everything else, and. Uh, 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 yeah, <laughs> I had fun the last couple of months. Let's let's put it that way. 
So how did you end up in Vegas, back in Vegas in 2005 at 97.1 KXPT? I'm selling. Uh, I had taken a few different sales jobs, and I took sales jobs for a couple of reasons. One was to learn about what I was selling, and the other was, uh, for that experience, um, was working for people I wanted to work for. Uh, long story short, I ended up selling windows for Renewal by Anderson. I was doing very well. And one, I had been at the job about four years and I was doing radio part-time here and there, bear and DVD and places like that. And um, filling in for Bob Schumann. And one day we had a, a meeting and we had our national sales manager in for Renewal by Anderson. It was 2005. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I was divorced for a few years at the time. I said, if anything ever happens in Vegas, can you let me know? And thinking, you know, why, you know, a window company is really not going to do much in Vegas just because of the extremes and all that. And she looked at me and went, oh, my God, we're talking to somebody this week about starting a franchise there. And I said, well, here's my card. See if they want to talk to me. You know, a week later, I get a phone call. Come on out. We're going to fly you out. Flew me out. They'd be sales manager. Loved meeting the owners, liked what their direction they were going to take it. So I ended up getting hired as sales manager for Renewal by Anderson in Vegas. You, offic you officially become a renaissance man. Well, I hadn't taken the position yet because I wanted to talk to my son who was eight years old and ask him if it was okay if I took this position because it's an opportunity, a great opportunity, good money, and you can come out to Vegas every few months and you know stay with me. Sure, Dad, I think you should do it. So I took the job. I wasn't, and unfortunately, before I took the job, before I left Vegas after the interview, the um, office manager was leaving and going to Denver. And she said, be careful, because I think they're bringing in a woman that used to work here that's crazy. So take the job at your own risk, because she's going to replace me. So I took the job because going back to Vegas, good pay, good salary. I'm going to be the boss. So I wasn't there two weeks after coming back and the micromanagement was unbelievable. I had four men and one woman as a sales staff. And within two weeks or probably three weeks, they fired the woman and I, without consulting me. And I had gone out on a couple of sales with her. And she was very good at what she did. She was very disarming, very good at sales. And we sold both times I went with her. So I knew she was capable. They didn't like that she complained a lot. She was a complainer. So they fired her without even discussing it with me. About two months go by, they come to me and said, well, we talked to our consultant and eh, we really don't need a sales manager anymore. So you have an opportunity to sell for us or that's it. I was like, great. And in that meantime, in that couple months, the broadcast company, Lotus, that I worked for in the 80s was very strong in the market. They had KXPT, they had Comp, and a couple of sports stations. And a guy that had worked with me or kind of for me in the 80s was begging me to come back to work at the point, not Comp. And I said, well, you know, it was the first time as a sales manager, I had weekends off in forever because I always worked weekends somehow, some way in radio. And I said, you know, I'm looking forward to Saturdays and Sundays off. I said, I'm not ready to come back to radio. So after I sold for a little while, 
it became evident to me that I wasn't going to last at this, this store because the micromanagement was overbearing. So I ended up losing that sales job and uh, got hired immediately to go to the point KXPT. And it's the longest I ever lasted anywhere. I lasted there 10 years. That's an eternity in broadcasting. Yeah, in radio it is. It became a, it was a full-time job. Then it became a part-time full-time because what they did is they split to save money. They put me and another uh, woman part-time seven to midnight where I would work one week, she'd work a week. I'd work one week. That way they didn't have to pay salary and benefits and all that because they were trying to cut costs. So that's what they did to us. It was part-time, full-time. So I ended up taking jobs during the day in sales. I sold cars and a couple of places. So, And then they came to me one day and said, you know, we know you've got the experience. The general manager, vice president of Lotus was from Sterling Heights. There was a couple of people, there was two or three or four people from Detroit in the, in the building. And I said, we know your experience. How would you like to be program director for the sports stations? But we still want you to be on the air on the classic rock station. So I took the position thinking I was going to change things my way and, and rock it up a little bit. In other words, the, the bumpers and things like that, I was going to enhance musically and, and make it more of a rock and roll sports kind of format and never really got the opportunity. I was overworked and underpaid pretty much. I was working 70 hours a week between being the PD and and doing on air on on the classic rock and also going to games and conferences and stuff like that. So it was a lot of work, the hardest I ever worked in my life. It became a, 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 just a trudge. And after about six months, I said, no, I can't do this anymore. It's just too much. And I just stuck with the classic rock station, gave up the PD position. Um, long story short, with Vegas, I became, uh, I was uh, inducted into the uh, Nevada Broadcasters Hall of Fame for the 12 years I did in Vegas. Wow, very and, nice. Yeah, so I've got that on my resume. And my brother got pretty ill here back in, in Michigan. He was living in northern Michigan near Alpena, uh, suffering from Asian orange stuff from Vietnam. Holy crap. Yeah. And there was, uh, my son was getting into a band that was about to get signed. He's a drummer. And uh, there was a woman that I was interested in and it was like, kill three birds with one stone. I'm going to come back. It was back just a perfect close. storm to come home, right? Yeah, perfect storm. I, I'm going to come back and be close to my brother, be able to direct my son a little bit better and uh, be, hopefully be with this woman eventually. And uh, I came back, and uh, that was it for radio. It was 2015. I want to throw out a couple names at you, and 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 get your thoughts on each individual. Can we play this? It's like it's, I guess, uh, my my version of uh, you know, Rich Eisen's True or False. But this is just to get your yeah. thoughts on individuals. Okay, Dan Carlisle. I see Dan and what he's doing now, and I appreciate the fact that his his format that he does is very diverse. But to me, there's no flow and continuity to it. He, he goes from one thing to another that just doesn't make sense musically or thematically. Um, but brilliant man, great, one of the great jocks. But, you know, I look at, look at it now and because and, and, he posts his, his set list and what he does. Is, and, and it's like, why'd you do that? To me, it's the same thing like deep tracks on XM. What a great format. But they're playing stuff just to play it. Right. They're not playing really good music all the time. To me, they're playing cuts just to play the cut. 
you know, and it's like, it's not even a good song. Why'd you play that? <laughs> you know, and, and again, that's the claim to fame that, well, we're playing pretty much everything. Well, yeah, you're playing a lot of crap too. <laughs> just, yeah. Talk to me about Jerry Lubin. Uh, just, just what a great human being. Jerry, when you, when you spoke with him and even listened to him, you didn't, you didn't sense the excitement of what he was doing, but he was so good at it. He was so natural and so relaxed and so comfortable doing what he did. He loved it so much that he was, he was just like O'Leary. He was just a joy to be around because radio was, was life. You know, it was you know, music and, and everything else and people, uh, just one of the genuine human beings in, in my life and radio. Uh, was very fortunate that he came out to Vegas. I took him to a romantics show that they were in town. And, and, you know, it was, that was the last time I saw him. It was good to visit with him in, in 2014. I think it was. You mentioned Doug Podell, your thoughts on Doug Podell. Doug and I uh, had a long storied relationship too. I mean, there, there was ups and downs with him, but uh, I respect him highly for what he's accomplished at times, I didn't understand how he was accomplishing that, um, to be honest. But uh, he proved himself to be very capable and, uh, you know, program director of the year many times, I think. And, uh, yeah, and Doug's, Doug's got a bigger resume than I do, probably. Um, I think other than Doug and maybe Costin, I think I even probably did more appearance stuff than even Steve did. And O'Leary was pretty good at, at you know, doing, showing up places and doing things too. But I was probably more the street jock than anybody in town other than Doug. What about Ken Calvert? Talk to me about Ken Calvert. KC was a gas. We had a blast when I was producing his morning show. Uh, I'm not going to talk badly about him, but there were some idiosyncrasies that Kenny had that uh, were frustrating. But uh, same time, he was, I love him to death. He was, he's one of my favorite humans. Uh, had a blast with him. I'm almost afraid to ask you about Arthur P. Baby! Um, <laughs> Poob, now keep in mind that Arthur, in all those years, doing bar appearances, had to deal for all those years with drunk guys coming up to him going, Baby! Right. Even I'm though sure. he was recognized, he hated it. Arthur's personality outside of radio was wonderful. He had a difficult time publicly because he just wanted to be left alone. And uh, so Art had to deal with that. But Art and I were, you know, we were, we got along phenomenally when we worked together. And I was his friend whenever, you know, I had to fake, fake Art a few times just to see if uh -huh. I could accomplish And I did. <clears throat> if you remember, Art used to do, it's a weekend, that. I faked, I faked that a couple of times when I filled in for him and people thought it was him taped nice. kicking off Fridays at five, but it was me live. But yeah, we had a blast. That's Art awesome. Did you ever work yeah. with Mark Pazman? Uh, Paz wasn't there when I was there. Paz had, was at CSX, I think, uh, either before or after when I was at Riff. So yeah, we didn't work together, but Paz and I you know each other pretty well. Now you've gotten to do a lot of cool things and we've talked about a lot of those in this podcast, Todd, but can you, is there one, maybe two just like moments that you're like, I can't fucking believe I did that. I would stand out as I can't fucking believe I did that. 
even if it's like a cool moment, you know, like I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I could experience this. Anything like introducing that. Introducing the Who at the Silverdome in front of 70,000 people. Um, Walk me through that. Well, it's it's not, it, it, it's so closed-minded in the sense that, you know, I look back on it and don't believe it happened, but I was there. <laughs> um, and it's funny, I got more nervous in front of a small crowd than I would if somebody was more than 10, 20,000 people. I did, you know, Pine Knob, I, you know, intro bands there. Yeah, um, but that's a far cry from 70,000 at the Pontiac. So Yeah, again, it was it was a you know, blur. It was just literally a blur. So you don't even remember gone. what you said. You were just like, I don't, I don't remember <laughs> the thing that I said. No. I will give you a, one of my claim to fames that I'm very proud of. Besides the fact that, uh, you know, those other things we talked about and the experiences, I've, got, I've had experiences on overnights at ABX that people wouldn't believe. You know, callers that called. I had a woman that called me for couple of years that uh, would follow me at, at appearances and tell me what I was wearing, but never show up, never introduce herself. Really? And she had the sexiest, sexiest voice in the world. Like claimed, now this is like play Misty for me playing out in real life. And when I was at W4 would call and ask the, ask me to get lady played by sticks. Well, so, was, so if you were in that movie, it wouldn't have been called play Misty for me. It would have been called play lady for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but that's, it was scary, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was scary because she, you know, she was brilliant and so engaging and so easy to talk to. And she said she was a nurse going to law school. I believe that. But I think the issue with her, is she might have been either really heavy or really unattractive. Something, something was going on because she would set up a meeting with me and then not show up. But you would also, you know, if I was playing softball for W4 or whatever, would come and watch the game and tell me, you know, I liked what you, that hit you got in the second inning and, and stuff. And I would have these conversations with her literally almost every night. And one time she set up a meeting with me and gave me an address to a house. And the address ran out the house before that address. So I literally, I mean, direction by direction, left turn by right turn. This is how you get there. It brought me all the way to the last house on the block before the address that she gave me. And then we talked about it and I get pissed off. What, what are you doing? And she would, you know, I'm sorry. And she knew that I made it there. Ron, wow. she made, she made a credit union payment on my motorcycle for me. What? She went to the credit union and made the payment. Oh. And I never met her. Wow. And when I went to Denver, she called me and said, I want the money that I paid for the motorcycle. And I said, well, come on out to Denver and get it. Never heard from her again. And when I got back to town and I was on riff and stuff, I was like, am I going to hear from her again? Her name was Debbie. Did you ever um, report it to the authorities or anything like that? No, no. And the funny thing is, back then we didn't have cell phones. She had my home phone. She, had, she talked to my mom. She called at work and talked to Steve Monkevich. I think she talked to my brother at one time. She was in, infiltrated into my life and never met her. Wow. So here's the claim to fame that I want to tell you about. So back in the day, a day when I was working at ABX, I did a thing at Tracks on Gratiot in Detroit called Musician's Referral. It was on Monday nights, and if you needed a bass player, guitar player, drummer, or something, you could come and jam and see somebody play. Well, at the time, 
Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers was in a band called Tilt. And the band Toby Red was kicking their drummer out because he was had a cocaine problem. So I told the guys in Toby Red, I said, I, I think I got, I think I got somebody that you might be interested in. I'll get him to come to Musicians Referral. I want you to see him. And I told Chad, I said, you got to come play for these guys. So Chad came to Musicians Referral, hooked up with a bass player and a guitar player, and just proceeded to tear up rock and roll from Led Zeppelin. And Chad is very animated anyway, but he was doing shit that night that you just like, what the fuck? He's... He, <laughs> How does he continue, you know, not missing a beat? He's dropping sticks on purpose, spitting, doing all kinds of things. And the guys in Toby were like, oh, my God, this guy's phenomenal. Long story short, they ended up pulling him into the band. They eventually got hired by RCA. And I had made it out to Vegas by this time because they played for a couple of years together and got signed by RCA. So I was able to promote them. I played them on comp in Vegas and promoted them on R&R. They had my my quotes and picture and all that stuff in the back page promoting this band. And the label basically dropped them after the first album and after a year or so. RCA really sucked at the time in doing their promotion. Again, long story short, Chad was up against minimum, I think it was 250, might have been over 300 guys trying out for the Peppers and got the job. So my claim to fame was I got him into the band he was in before Peppers. So very nice. Well, I I can't I can't thank you enough how, how candid you've been today. A, a couple more things before we wrap up. I, I want to ask you specifically, what are your thoughts on terrestrial radio as a whole in current day, and where do you see radio headed? Uh, terrestrial radio is hurting, and uh, and the thing that I will give uh, as a closer here kind of thing is I'm trying in my own ability to try and get a Michigan Music Hall of Fame going somewhere here in Detroit. Uh, I think we've got too much to offer. I think the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a joke compared to city to city. I think we are, as a city, there isn't anybody that matches Detroit. There's so many people, so many radio personalities that came from Detroit that are nationally known. And even if they're mm -hmm. not, I mean, they're just household names Stern, in Detroit. Stern couldn't succeed. Stern didn't succeed here. Yeah, but my point uh, being is, there's such a rich history here, not just for music, but radio. Radio and yeah, absolutely. And uh, the formats and the, you know, going back to ABX being one of the free first free forms. Uh, the station, the market had four rock stations at one time. Our heritage, let alone rock and roll, in the state of Michigan, jazz, industrial, uh, blues you know, on and on. So, but as far as what I would do radio terrestrially, I think it's, it's definitely hurting just because of how many different things there are that you can, you know, get your music from these days, you know, uh, uh, anybody gets a new record, they get airplay for two days and they're done. There's no current, you know, you can't play current new rock, rock music, Greta Van Fleet. That's about it. I would change the format for rock these days, and it would be a combo. It would be definitely 2549 directed uh, demographically, and it would be like a AAA, but with more Detroit and Michigan content, almost like Canadian, where, you know, I would, I would play at least 20% of the content would be Detroit and Michigan, and play more Bob Seger, play more Rockets, play more, you know, more Iggy, more White Stripes, more everything. Uh, and I'm sure we could have an ABXS 
type radio station in this market that would be so strongly supported. Maybe the numbers wouldn't be a six share or eight share or 10 share. Maybe it's a four or five share, but it would be the strongest four or five share you'd ever see in your life. Right. So, you know, that's where I'm at. I mean, if somebody gave me a radio station right now, I guarantee you the TSL would be as good or better than country. I, I, I so confident I could put together a radio station that would work. Um, we've got a lot of people out of work. Unfortunately, we're missing one now with O'Leary passing, but, uh, there's people that are you know, working part-time or out of work that could fill my air staff that I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah. There's, hire. there's just so many people that are just that there would be hall of famers into this, this, the, this project you you're dreaming of, or that would yeah. hope would be awesome if it was available. But uh, yeah, I just think there's so much talent just in this area. I mean, I'm just, just talking doing this podcast, the people that have been on this yeah. podcast. I mean, some of them still work in the business, but a lot of them don't. You know, and a lot of it's not by choice because that's the sad thing about it is the fact that what we long for, what it used to be, it is, that's not what it is anymore. Right. And again, just, you know, and I mentioned this, um, gosh, I got to think of his name now, but uh, program director at uh, XM and Sirius. I said, why not have a Michigan channel? Why not have a, a Philly, Philadelphia channel? Why not have a... New Orleans or Louisiana channel, an Austin, right. Texas channel, and just focus. I mean, I, I think it would be internationally famous if, if right. we had that opportunity. You know, so, I, as a little side note, you brought up New, New Orleans. Did did you ever work with uh, with uh, China Jones? China, Ted? Yeah, Ted. Yeah, Ted he's Ted he's killing it as an actor. Have you, have you been following what he's doing? He's killing it. He's a he's an actor now, isn't he? Yeah, he's been. He was like he had a he was he was on NCIS New Orleans. He's been in like yeah. his his his, his uh, resume just continues to grow. But yeah, he's been on Jimmy well, Kimmel and bits. But he's was, just killing it. That was the tough period at ABX when Ted was the PD because we didn't like what he was doing. And we we're you know I was playing free in nineteen what was it nineteen eighty three. I was playing free all right now every four and a half hours. <laughs> and then he comes in and says, we you know, I almost laughed because I've had him on the podcast when he said that he narrowed the playlist to like two or 3000. And I almost chuckled because oh, of what it, it two became. Or 3, 000, it was a few hundred. It was yeah. terrible. It was so tight and it ruined ABX. That's what everybody was like. What the hell? Yeah. There's a lot of people that still haven't forgiven him. It's, it's not no, good. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was a, it was a dark period in ABX's history. What's next for Todd Fowler? Well, I'm old enough to retire, and I, I kind of semi-retired. I retired from radio in 2015, and now I, I work for a golf company, PXG, and uh, I worked at a golf course the last year, and that's kind of what I'm going to do. Uh, if Unless somebody gives me the opportunity to do radio somewhere and, uh, and create and, and do it right, uh, it, you won't hear me again, I don't think. Uh, it's unlikely. Uh, you know, I, I would do it just for fun, but it's not fun anymore either because you're you're so, you know, right. if you work for a station terrestrial these days, it's so formatted that right. it's not enjoyable. You go in and hit a space bar. 
basically is what you do. So. Well, again, I want to thank you again so much for being so candid. I didn't really, I wasn't planning on being Mike Wallace today, but I'm sure when I listen back, I'm going to be like, you, you know, you, you you were very candid. I, I, I very much appreciate it. I, like I said, I'm not no, looking to break ground truth. here, but you were very honest, and I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I let, I let some truth out that I'll usually only tell, tell friends and, you know, close associates, but, uh, you know, the things that I said and did and got myself in trouble, but that's what happens in radio. If you didn't get fired at least a couple times in radio and weren't successful, and uh, well, that's that's what John O'Leary always used to say: you're, you're not really yeah. a radio until you've been fired. And so that's yeah. the truth, and, you know. Or the company changed format because oh. ownership, that kind of stuff. So yeah, and you've seen just about too everything hard. too. So yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, thank you, Todd, um, and thank you're you again for through. tuning in for Radio Days the podcast, and of course, keeping out for Radio Days the movie coming this spring. Tune in next week for yet another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Until then. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.